0: And for those who don't know, Keys competitions is like professional sports, but for nerds, so other guys my age are playing rugby or basketball or baseball, some other sport you probably wouldn't see me playing. I was doing presentations competitively, Brody, that's how I learned how to speak. But then as I got older, I started coaching other students on how to communicate ideas, and I accidentally developed a skill and teaching other people how to communicate. So then a few years later, I had the idea for the YouTube channel, MasterTalk, because I thought to myself, no one's really sharing this information online on how to communicate for free. So I just started making videos in my mom's basement. And then a few years later, it turned into something I never could have imagined.
1: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Profession Session. I'm Brody Vincent, and I'm on a mission not only to define professional greatness through the tactics and qualities behind it, but also to help anyone that's trying to achieve professional greatness do it through the lens of others that have achieved it before them. I couldn't be more thankful for everyone that helps me continue along this mission through being able to do this podcast. And if you've ever gotten any value out of it, I ask only two things in return. If you could share it in the same way that you found it with someone else that you think could get value, it helps me so much. And if you could also just hit the subscribe button if you haven't yet, it helps me so much in just securing better and better guests for the show to share more impactful knowledge with you in this pursuit that we're both on for professional greatness. So without further ado, let's get on to this week's episode. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm really excited to get into your story because it's a, it's a cool story of just kind of diving deep into a skill and seeing that pay off over time uh seeing it really provide value to other people and just really leveraging that really well so i'm excited to just kind of approach it from that direction hear a little bit more about your story that we'll get into so um, could you start by just kind of giving me the, the context that I need to know to understand the story behind what you do now.
0: So for me, the, the, the journey started when I was in college. I went to business school because I thought I was going to be an accountant. And that's what I graduated in, funny enough, which is opposite to what I do today. And as I'm working through this degree, somebody tells me I need to do these case competitions so I get a job in accounting. And for those who don't know, case competitions is like professional sports. But for nerds, so other guys my age were playing rugby or basketball or baseball, some other sport you probably wouldn't see me playing. I was doing presentations competitively, Brody. That's how I learned how to speak. But then as I got older, I started coaching other students on how to communicate ideas, and I accidentally developed a skill in teaching other people how to communicate. So then a few years later, I had the idea for the YouTube channel, Master MasterTalk, because I thought to myself, no one's really sharing this information online on how to communicate for free. So I just started making videos in my mom's basement. And then a few years later, it turned into something I never could have imagined.
1: That's quite the story. Uh, so question for you. You mentioned just coaching the older students on how to communicate better. What did that look like? Is it just them kind of taking note that you're really succeeding in these case competitions and trying to kind of be better themselves?
0: So the first 50 people I coached Brody, it wasn't for money. I didn't even know coaching was a profession. So what had happened was, I just I just happened to go to a school where the world's largest case competition program was in there. So there was like 300 people trying out for the program every year, and we probably take 70 or 80 students. So the first year that I competed, I was mostly a delegate. So a delegate is just somebody who goes out to the competitions and competes. And when I started doing well the year after I became an executive to help run the program with other students because it's student run and then I was just looking at the people we selected I was a part of the decision the year after of who gets in and who doesn't I just told the rest of the executive team I was like look Guys, like 20% of the kids that were picking for this – sorry, I called my students kids. Other kids were picking for this program. They're really they're really good at – they're really smart, but they don't know how to communicate. We'd have a communication coach. Let me just be that person because I'm a good speaker. I don't know how to coach, but let me just figure it out. So I would just sit down with these students and help them with presentation skills. And I think the reason my ideas became – I guess, relevant later in life is because since I didn't really have any formal training, I was kind of throwing a bunch of tomatoes at the wall and seeing what was sticking. So whenever I was sharing an idea on how I thought I mastered it, the student would come back and go, well, that didn't work. And I said, then I'd try something else. And we'd kind of throw the tomatoes at the walls together until we figured out a a process that got clients, not clients, sorry, the students really, really good results. And that's what translated later into what I ended up doing.
1: Just a lot of trial and error. So... What makes for a good coach, do you think? Obviously, it sounds like you kind of figured it out over time through trial and error. What are some of the primary things that go into being a good coach for someone in whatever you're doing?
0: There's a great question, by the way. There's a couple of aspects I I would tackle on that. The first one is a great coach exceeds the level of excellence that the student has for themselves so another way of looking at that is a great coach has a vision for the student that is greater than the vision they have for themselves not just in the sport that they're playing but in their life so i'll give you an example let's say a student goes you know my goal is to start a business and hopefully i can make 10, 10 extra bucks this year the coach is looking at them like what do you mean you're going to make 100 grand this year as an example so they see a bigger vision. That's number one. Number two, they're able to communicate the vision and push people into action. I don't think in, in coaching is enough to just say, here's what you do. This is the tip. And then I'm going to go home. I, I think co- great coaches move people into action. They motivate them. There's a funny story around this where part of the case competition program involves actual sports that obviously didn't participate in. So we'd send like a a group of athletes from the school who would compete. But I was also the coach for that sports team, which kind of happened by accident. But I knew nothing about the sport. It's a sport in Quebec called kinball. I'm sure you've never heard of it. It's very niche. It's like this big ball you throw around. And we didn't have a coach. And I didn't even want to be it. I just kind of showed up. I, I went to the competition, I, I, I woke up for the first call, I just wanted to watch them and then leave to watch my my nerds kind of give presentations. And then after we had won the first match, cause I was kind of yelling at them half the time, the team came back and said, you're going to be the coach today. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I think that's the second piece is we push great people into taking action. And then the, the third piece is coaches walk their talk. So I'm never going to tell you, Brody, to get up in the morning at 5 a.m. and work out. And the reason I'll never tell you that is because Brendan doesn't do that, right? But I'll tell you to do things that I'm implementing in my life. Whereas I think a lot of coaches in the world, they kind of tell you to do something, but then they don't actually implement it. So it's not fully aligned.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's it's going to come across as invaluable uh, as just not valuable and, and not legitimate if they're not actually walking the talk where do you think so you mentioned just having a greater vision for the students obviously you're a coach yourself where do you think the ability to have that great vision comes from for you specifically how are you able to do that with an unproven person which is inherently the nature of someone that Needs the coaching in the first
0: place. Interesting point. So I think for me, and and let me know if I answer the question wrong or not, is for me the person that I'm speaking to. I always start with the belief in communication coaching, which is different than life, and we could talk about that if you want. But in communication coaching, you know the fundamental belief I have is that anybody I coach can be an exceptional communicator, and by exceptional communicator, I mean ten times better than where they are currently regardless of their skill set. And the reason I'm such a big believer in that is because I sucked at communication most of my life, right? I grew up in a city called Montreal. For those who don't know, it's a city where you need to know how to speak French, which is a language I didn't know. So I was literally presenting in school a language I didn't even know how to speak. So I had a lot of nerves. The second piece is I have physical disability in my left arm. So because of that, whenever people watch me present in person, they always look at my arm. They don't look at my face whenever I talk. So I had a lot of insecurities around speaking. So for me, anybody I meet, regardless of how terrible they are at communication, as long as they want to fix it, already have the underlying belief that they can do it. That's the first step. And then you follow a couple of steps that we'll talk about today. One of them is like the random word exercise. Pick a random word like phone and create a random presentation. But what happens, Brody, is everybody believes that they can't do the exercise even once. So after I force the client or the student to do it a 100 times in two weeks, that's my barometer for a lot of these guys, is once they get there, Then I let them set the vision by just asking them, hey, what else is possible for your communication skills? So the beginning of that process is me taking ownership of the vision and saying, this is where you're going to go. And then when the person is feeling that momentum, then they go, this is where I want to go and this is the direction I want to head. And then as the coach, I look at that and I go, you're going in the right direction, but you're not playing big enough. And I push the vision even further. That makes sense.
1: That makes total sense. Great answer. And I think this is a perfect segue to get into some of those deep level tips that you're kind of alluding to there. I wanted to get into some of the communication strategy that you go through with your clients and with your students. You mentioned the um, the the one there that where you have them go through those drills of the, um, the the word drills. I remember hearing that in one of the interviews that I did in my research. But could you go over that a Absolutely little bit in more detail? It.
0: So communication is like juggling 18 balls at the same time. One of those balls is storytelling. One of those balls is body language. One of those facial expressions. And the list goes on. But for me, the question has been, what are the three easiest balls to juggle? Because if we can figure out those three easy balls, we can gain momentum really quickly in our skill set. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say somebody wants to lose weight. Sure, There's 10 different things, probably a hundred different things you can do, but it really boils down to exercising regularly, eating less food and eating cleaner food. That's pretty much simple. So if you can stay consistent at doing the right things for 30 days, I'd say the chances that you lose a pound or two are really, really high. So what happens is when you see that result, you go, oh my God, this is possible. Now I'm going to hire a trainer. Now I'm going to do all the right things and I'm going to get the result because I believe I can do it. How do we bring that belief into communication? So for me, what that looks like in our field is three easy balls. Let's go through them. Number one is the random word exercise. You pick a word like cell phone, like light bulb, and you create a 60 second presentation on the spot out of thin air. And this serves two main purposes, Brody. The first purpose is it helps us deal with uncertainty. Life is filled with it. right? Whether we're talking to a friend at a cocktail or at an event, whether we're interviewing for a job, we don't really know what's going to happen sometimes. So if you could talk about avocado toast for 45 seconds, you could deal with any situation. And then number two that people can write down if they want, is if you can make sense out of nonsense, you can make sense out of anything. So if you could talk about avocados or building or home, when you go back to your subject matter expertise, regardless of what you want to do in life, it's just really easy for you to present those topics. And that's number one. Number two is the question drill. We get asked questions all the time in our life right at school at work at home or at or just in general but the question now becomes how do we get better at answering those questions because we're not ready for them i'll give you a quick story a few years ago when i started guesting on podcasts, i sucked i remember some guy looked at me he was like hey brendan where does the fear of communication come from and i was like uh i don't i don't know los angeles new york city texas you tell me i have no idea and I didn't answer the question correctly. So how do we fix this Brody? Every single day for five minutes, I answered one question that I thought the world would ask me about my expertise. So day one was how do you overcome your fear of communication? Day two is what tips do you have for introverts? Day three is what's your vision for master talk? But if you do that once a day for a year, you'll have answered 365 questions about your industry you'll be bulletproof and finally number three my last row is the video message pick three people you love in your life and just ask yourself when was the last time you sent them a twenty second voice note or video message to just show them how much you appreciate having them in your life and the only rule is you're not allowed to retake the video that's it if you do this enough times you'll get really good And one special trick I'll give as a bonus is my Google Calendar here tells me whose birthday it is. Let's say a best friend of mine, a client that's been working with me. And every time it's their birthday, I take out my phone, I put a stupid birthday hat on, and I open my camera and I go, guess whose birthday it is? It's yours, and I hope you have a beautiful day. That's it.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. I love those three. And actually – I had an idea as you were going over the first one. Could we do like a little live uh, random Absolutely. word exercise?
0: Pick something tough for me to make sure I'm not cheating. So I've got this
1: I've got this little Himalayan salt lamp.
0: It. Yes, yes, yes. Does that work? So for those who are listening to the podcast, All right. Brody did not give me Himalayan salt lamp. I've never done this before in my career, <laughs> this specific word. So watch me do it right now. I remember Brody as a kid. I used to be scared of the dark all the time. Imagine the seven-year-old kid, I was scared out of my wits as I was sleeping next to my mom and I would always stare into that closet and hope that the monster in that closet wouldn't eat me. And the reason I tell you that story, Brody, is because my cousin Jasmine had the same fear. So whenever we would go to Toronto, he would always have a little lamp. It wasn't a Himalayan sea salt lamp or anything like that, but just a regular night lamp that he would keep so that it would ward off all of the monsters in our room. And the reason I tell you that is because all of us have fears. And we cling on to them. Kind of like the imaginary stories we tell ourselves as kids. Whether it's the monsters that are sitting in our closet. Maybe it's the Tooth Fairy or even Santa Claus. So the punchline is I want you to use a lamp to guide the decisions that you make in your life. Whether it's a Himalayan sea salt lamp and you want to get a little fancy with me, or whether it's any other lamp, the key is lamps bring clarity, light to the decisions that you want to make. So I encourage all of you in this podcast to use a lamp, not just to guide the monsters out of your closets, but I don't just mean the imaginary ones. I mean the tough conversations that you don't want to have with your family. I mean not working out as much as you should i mean not pursuing the dreams that you want to achieve in your life and if you want to make it fancy with the himalayan sea salt lamp go for it you're my guest i love it That was tough that was awesome man
1: (laughs) (laughs) very well done you did great though let's go another step deep here and kind of use that example that you just gave to kind of get into some tactics, um, I want to talk. One thing I noticed in there is the storytelling. Uh, another thing I noticed is just some kind of speech tactics that it seemed like you were using. I noticed some pauses, some other things. Could you kind of think back through that real quick and just go over some of what you feel like are the the biggest, most important tactics? Because I feel – I'm a very visual learner. I learn through examples. So I find it helpful to kind of – that's why I wanted to give that example. But I find it very helpful to go into like a a specific example like that and see it like Absolutely, but it's
0: like we discussed before, right? Like great coaches walk their talk. Like if I wasn't able to do the exercise, why am I teaching you to do it, right? So so very good. So a couple of points, but let me keep it really simple because you're right. I did tell a story – there was a lesson, I did pause, my facial expressions were on point. But this goes back to that analogy from before. I'm the result of someone who's able to juggle, maybe not 18, but 16 out of 18 of those balls, let's say. Because Brendan still needs to get better too. I still have a lot to work on. But that's the result. But let's backtrack to the advice. The advice is the first 100 times you do the exercise, you shouldn't worry about any of those things. And I'll tell you why. The reason is because 99% of people listening to this podcast won't even try this once. And that's the biggest problem we need to optimize for. You can't get better at something if you're not willing to do it a lot. And I'll use you as the best example. I doubt In your first episode of this podcast, you're as good as you are today. Because today you're really good at asking follow-up questions, going into the nuances of what the guest is bringing. I doubt you're able to do that in the first episode, right? Nope. Exactly. So what was the advice at the beginning? The advice was just to start. Hey, just get started, Brody. And then over time, sure, you might get nervous. Crap, I got a speech coach on today. I hope I don't say an um or ah while I'm speaking. right? But then over time, obviously, I'm just kidding around that. But then over time, you get a lot more skilled. You go, oh, I did some research. I'm going to do this. And the same thing that made you successful is the same advice for everyone else. And then let's break down the details. The first hundred. I'll challenge all of you. Book five minutes in your calendar every single day for three weeks, and you'll hit a hundred. And, and don't worry about how good it sounds. Because at the beginning, it's going to sound like this. Oh my god, Himalayan sea salt lamp. I've never gotten that word before. Oh, I guess a lamp is something. That's what you'll do at the beginning. But then after a hundred you start to not care about what people think. You start to have fun with this exercise. Or when you're at 3,000 like me, you really start to own and craft that idea. And then when you pass 100, then you're not scared to do it anymore. Then you go into the granular details that you mentioned. Okay, pause more effectively, smile more next time, add a vision, add a key lesson, bring up, we have a story around it, if that makes sense. But feel free to follow up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. You got to kind of get the practice and just get the reps under your belt before you can go into the deep level tactics. I've certainly experienced that, like you'd kind of alluded to there with the podcast. I want to get into some principles of good storytelling and how how you can tell a story effectively to represent what you're trying to mu- communicate. That's something that I've kind of just noticed I'd say fairly recently in my podcast is I'm always interviewing these different people, and I've recently honed in on highlighting the story behind the actual person's profession or whatever they've been successful at, and I've noticed really great results with that. I've noticed it really resonates with people a lot more because I think it there's something about that storytelling that delivers the message better. Could you get into... What you've found that is and, and why
0: that is. So, so for me, what, what creates great storytelling is it goes back to Les Brown's quote, which I'll simplify for us, which is simply never make a point without telling a story and never tell a story without making a point. What does he mean by that? What Les means, Brody, is that every great story starts with a key lesson in mind first. A lot of people make the mistake of writing a story that doesn't have a point to it and if it doesn't you kind of go all around the place we all have that friend in our lives who comes up to us and says brody brody you can't believe what happened to me last week you're like yeah dude what happened and then he keeps talking and talking and talking, and then 20 minutes later you're thinking when is the story going to end like what's the point of this story and we're, we're stuck and we can't get out of that conversation. But that's most of us with storytelling so the first step to mastering this brody is to not think of storytelling it's to think of the lesson What do i want people to drive so write a list of key outcomes and circle the one you want to teach then once you've chosen the right outcome then what i want you to do is take two steps back and say what's the best story in my mind that i can use to really prove this let's use an example to make this practical What's a key outcome that I share every time on a podcast? My main key outcome is very simple, to convince anybody who's listening to the podcast that they can become an exceptional communicator too. So I threw that through multiple ways. I'll tell tips that are so simple that even if you're five years old, you go, oh, I could do that in my basement, like the random word exercise. Oh, video messages? Okay, he's not asking me to post on social media. He's asking me just to send one to my buddy or something, or to Brody, right? So it's to you, right? So simple. Or, you know, question drills. Okay, I just have to ask myself a question every day. So the, as the conversation goes on, people get slowly convinced that communication isn't some hard thing. It, they're just not practicing it. And that's the key. But what's the best story that I've told in my career to help drive that point home? And I've tried so many different stories, story of myself, story of some other people, story of, you know, how Jack Ma became a great communicator, even if he has a really thick Chinese accent, I've tried everything. And the one that works the best by far is my own story. Because if a kid, like I started Mass Talk when I was a kid, I was like 22 years old. If that kid could coach executives of high-level companies, yet he still lives in his mother's basement, he has a crooked left arm, he grew up in a city where he needed to learn a language that he couldn't even understand, and he studied in accounting? Accounting! Like he has a bachelor's degree in literally the most boring field on earth, and he's one of he's one of the most he's one of the kind of the the great communication coaches, and he figured this out. Well, if this guy could do it, I could hundred percent do it, and that's great storytelling. You tell a story, and it leads to the outcome, which in my case is, hey, if I could do it, why can't you?
1: I love that. I think one of the important points is that you're kind of breaking it down into actionable steps, and I think that. That just makes it a lot more palatable for someone it makes it more achievable in your mind Uh, what are some of the the biggest pitfalls of communication I heard you on another interview talk about how there you were talking about Elon Musk and how he is kind of inherently or or was at a point kind of a bad communicator and he has approved uh, and has been able to deliver his message which is an incredible one a lot better, Uh, what are some, maybe use him as an example or or another person if it, if it works better, but what are some kind of pitfalls of communication that you see most often that people can most easily address?
0: So I would say that the most important one by far is lack of consistency. That's the biggest issue. All the tips I shared so far today are really simple. Like it's not hard, but I have yet to meet a human being Brody in my life who books 15 minutes in their calendar every day for the next 30 days. And notice I didn't say 15 hours. One, five, 15 minutes to do the random word exercise for five minutes. To do the question drill once. and to send three video messages every day or every few days. I've yet to meet one person that's been able to do this for 30 days straight. And that's really what I encourage people to do. It's not the fact that we're not practicing our ums and ahs, or we're not recording ourselves enough the biggest issues is we're just not going to the gym of communication so if we're not going to the gym how are we supposed to get better how are we supposed to get more lean how are we supposed to get the results that we want so that's the biggest challenge that i see the second one i'll list three there's probably 50 but i'll give you kind of the top three the second one is people don't listen to their audience they don't take the time to actually sit them down. I think what really differentiated me from other people in my space, because most of my colleagues are PhDs in communication, right? and Who make content similar to mine. So, but what I did differently is I would sit a lot of these people down for like four or five hour dinners while chomping on like $10 dumplings. And I would just ask them, like back when I was starting the channel, Brody, I was like, you know, what, what videos should I make? What are your challenges? And then one person would go, Hey, Brendan, I'm struggling in my second language. English is really hard for me because I grew up in India or China and I have to study in the US. How do I present in my second language? And I'm thinking to myself, huh, no one's made a video on this. That's really good. And then some other student would go, oh, you know, Brendan, I would love it if you could break down famous speakers and how they talk. I go, Why didn't I think of that? That's pretty smart. And then somebody else would go like, but what, this is all cool, Brendan, but what do I actually practice tomorrow? Sure, 93% of all, you know, communication is nonverbal. What do I do with that? Like, what do I take home to the bank and start cashing out, like, practice routines? And I go, yeah, you're right. If I just throw statistics at people, people won't get better at this. And that's a mistake that people make, Brody. They don't spend enough time asking their audience if what they're sharing is actually valuable to them and getting people to get results, which brings me to the third piece, the three layers of communication. The first layer, and this is where most of us make the mistake is we only pay attention to that one, which is how do we get people to listen to ideas? And this is wrong. That's right, but wrong because you're forgetting the other two layers, which is how do we get people to take action in our ideas? And the third layer, how do we get people to share our ideas? And if you only master the first layer, okay, I got you to listen to me, Brody. But if you don't go home and practice the random word exercise, it's mission failed, brother. I didn't. I wasn't successful. And so when I started my career, I would always shove a bunch of content. Okay, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And then I'd ask people who would listen to me on a podcast, and I would go, Hey, what did you do? And they go, Oh, nothing. I go, Ah. Oh. So that's why you'll notice now. Throughout the whole interview, I probably mentioned the random word, exercise, at least 10 times. But that's very intentional because I'm pushing people into action. I'm not just getting them to listen to my ideas. And that's the third piece.
1: Interesting. So just kind of repetition of the message to, to kind of hit that point home multiple times. What is the biggest thing that you're working on in your own personal
0: communication sure. right now? I would say for me, and, and that's where my weakness is, I'm having trouble finding new areas to work on with my communication. So a lot of my growth in these days is on areas of life outside of my communication. But I'll give you one in particular that I'm, I'm too scared to work on, but I'm happy to share. So, so let's, let's start with life. So one of my big weaknesses is I have a really limiting money mindset. So even if I do well financially, like this chair that, I, that I'm sitting on this interview with, literally two weeks ago, if you had interviewed me, at Brody, I would have been a dining table chair that I'd be sitting on. Like the same chair that I've been using for 20 years. And my coach, or 10 years, let's say. And my coach says, Brendan, why, do, why don't you just buy a new chair? And I go, why? This one works just fine. And he goes, well, why are you using a $3 chair when you're a $2,000 hour guy? And I was like, huh. Yeah, he's right, I need to change my environment. So it was really hard for me to buy this channel. It sounds really stupid, but I was just like, it wasn't that expensive, it was like two, 300 bucks. But I was just like, oh my God, like I need to spend the money. I need to do the same thing with my stand up desk that I'm using right now. So that's something I'm working on. In terms of my next area of growth, there's two main areas of communication that I don't think I'm ready yet to master, but that I'll need to in my lifetime. The first one is the relationship between communication and spirituality. Like, for example, one of the videos I made last month, it's not going to come up for another year because I write like years in advance, Brody. But it's basically a video on how do you use your intuition to communicate more effectively? And that's a video I've always been scared to make because I don't really consider myself that spiritual compared to other people. Like, how do you use? Like, for example, I'm really good at using my own intuition to like present. Like, I just know where to go. But it's hard for me to teach you how to use your intuition to communicate ideas. So I had to go deeper and I just had kind of the courage to like make the first video. I don't think it's that good. I'm still gonna post it. Though everyone else will think it's good. I just won't think it's good. And then over time I'll I'll get better. So that's one is to improve the spiritual relationship I have with life and just to get better. And the second one is romantic relationships. I've never been in a relationship, even as of today. I'm 27 currently. And, I, and I've always been scared of relationships, just romantic. So because of that, I haven't learned that side of communication. So I'm not equipped to teach it. It's not what people pay me for, but it's a, it's a new area of communication that I'll, need to, that I'll need to master if my goal is to be the best in the world at this by the, by the time my life ends. So yeah, those are two things.
1: That's a tough area. Yeah, yeah, It'll sure. take some work. I, I'm working on it myself <laughs> in my <laughs> own relationship, and it, it takes constant work, but it's worth there it. There you go. <laughs> anyone that, that's kind of in your industry that was a thought leader ahead of yourself that you've really looked looked up to and, and really taken advice from? Oh, yeah, absolutely, to
0: You know, for me, the, the mindset is anyone who's ahead of me is my teacher. So I would say one of the weaknesses I do have, though, is I'm a lot better at listening to other thought leaders than thought leaders in my own space. Because the real thought leader that I admire in my space, unfortunately, doesn't have a YouTube channel or podcasting because it's Dale Carnegie and he died in 1955. So you don't really, Mm. which is so unfortunate, by the way, which is a separate conversation for another day. But that's that's one in turn. First stop, if we get a time machine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be interesting for sure. I, w- I would listen to you interviewing him. I think that'd be fascinating.
1: Maybe I'll get one you one You never day. know. Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> so that's one piece. In terms of thought leaders that I studied today, Tony Robbins, obviously I'm a big fan. I've I've been to many of his conferences. I've sat in rooms of him speaking in person. He's, he's a really strong orator and I've, I've learned a lot. Gary Vaynerchuk I'm a big fan of his the way that he's built his social media brand I like the way how relatable he is to different pockets of audiences he's like one of the few people I can point to that can relate to a 55 year old executive who works at like IBM and a five year old kid so I, so it's really fascinating how he's able to speak in a way where both of those people are attracted to his message. So that's two, and my third one is Alex Hermosi I'm a big fan of the way that he shows up on podcasts. He's relatively new to the space of thought leadership, but he's he's made a name for himself relatively quickly.
1: Yeah, he's incredible. All great names. Um, my favorite in there is Alex Hormozzi. He's he's incredible. And the point I was that came to mind about Gary. Uh, I think his superpower and being able to relate to all those people is he stays in the streets kind of like what you were talking about with your audience earlier how you really made a point and make a point to ask what kind of videos do you want to see from me what do you want to hear from me how can I help you I think Gary Vaynerchuk is the king of that that's a a really big point of, of his success because I mean you see it in his content he's constantly just asking all the different people deep level questions because he really cares right
0: And that's a very sharp observation by the way a lot of people don't catch that Brody so let me push it even more because you mentioned that there's a level of obsessiveness that Gary has that is Incomprehensible to the average human being. Like, think about it. This is what people don't get is like, when you see him on the street today with the social media brand he has today, you don't really take a step back and think, okay, this guy's a CEO of like a $300 million company. And yet, instead of building more business, he's sitting in the dark at 11 30 p.m. in New York City in the middle of a street. With, I don't think any security. I think he's got, like, two body... Go- Maybe? I don't really see security around him.
1: No, you never do. And you, see, he, his content is so, like, in his daily life that you you totally would if you did. It's probably an intentional choice for the content, That's honestly. fair.
0: And yet, <laughs> instead of talking to, like, the CEO of Apple which I'm sure he's buddies with, and building more reports so he can make it a $3 billion income. He's talking to like some 12-year-old kid <laughs> in the middle of the street. It's, it's, it's obviously amazing, but it's also ridiculous. It's also like, wait a second. So the message here that I want to pluck out from your share is even today when he's made it, he's still hungrier than the person who has nothing in their pocket. And that's what makes Gary Vee so special, is even, at, even me. Like, I'm not even close to what Gary Vee's doing, and I'm not even nearly as successful as him, and he's still working harder than me. So that's or everyone else who's listening to this podcast, and, and that's a powerful message. It really embodies what you talked about in spades.
1: Yeah, I think he'll stay ahead of people for that same reason and, and always be kind of a motivating factor for people. You mentioned, uh, speaking of being successful, you mentioned earlier how you have you feel like you have a little bit of a limiting money mindset. The observation I get from that is it's probably not the, the biggest of motivators for you personally. I, I might be wrong about that, but it it, seem, it would seem like money might not be your biggest motivator. What motivates you and what does success mean to you?
0: So I'm not going to lie when I say I love money, right? I think money solves most of your problems. And I think anyone who says just to follow your passion and give some PR stint around how great they are and how great they are at helping other people is probably lying. So, So yes, you know, but what I will say, Brody, I'm very fortunate and lucky and I couldn't have controlled that, that it just so happens that my gift, the thing that I absolutely adore doing in life is also something I can get paid a lot of money to do. And that's not true if you're a painter, unless you're in the 0.00001% of all painters. Most people just can't make a living at the level I can in, in coaching. So, so with that said, you are right. There's definitely a deeper purpose to what I'm doing behind MasterTalk, which is essentially I think the next Elon Musk is a seven-year-old girl who can't afford a communication coach. That was the main ethos. Like When I started making YouTube videos, like we were discussing earlier, I never thought this was a business. And it's not because I'm a philanthropist. I always want to make sure that's clear. It's not because I'm a, a pope or something. It's because I had a great job at IBM. You know, I was making six figures as a technology consultant. I was having the time of my life there. Even when I quit my job, I gave a six-week notice. Like, I really enjoyed working there. It wasn't like I hated it. It's just what happened is as I was going through my life, I realized that I made a big mistake which is I always thought that money was more important than anything else. And I was wrong. There's actually a resource that is infinitely more valuable than money that I learned a few years ago, which is your time. You can't buy your time back. So when I realized that, I started asking myself the bigger questions of life, which is, okay, well, if I had all the money in the world, how would I spend my time? And when I answered that question, Brody, I realized it wasn't my day job. Not to say the day job was bad, but every time I was in those meetings, I was thinking, why am I running this technology implementation meeting with the client? Any Somebody else can do this for me. I don't need to be in this meeting. I should be spending that hour being on a podcast with Brody. I should be spending that hour coaching a client. I should be spending that hour giving a keynote. I think that's a better use of my time. And then when I looked back and did a lot of inner work, I kind of just realized that I was in a very unique position in my life where I'm currently 27, but I have eight years of experience in communication coaching. So because no one's in that position right now that I know of on earth, except maybe one of my friends, I have an opportunity to finish what Dale Carnegie started. You know, I think the challenge behind Dale's work, Brody, is that we don't know what he sounds like. Like you, you don't see, you can't see Dale Carnegie doing the random word on a podcast like me because podcasting didn't exist there's no video you couldn't capture a sound whereas i have that opportunity that he didn't and i take that opportunity really seriously i
1: think that's an important point it makes me want to go back in time and get him on that podcast even more my new life's mission if you're <laughs> sure. if you're listening to this and you're inventing time travel hurry up and give me the inside access <laughs> 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 we'll see though um uh, fingers crossed on that one um Another question that came to mind as you we were talking, um, just a, a question I like to ask, kind of based on the industry. Obviously, your industry you mentioned you have eight years in, is communication. What is the most controversial opinion that you feel like you hold on communication?
0: I have a lot. I just don't know to what degree of controversial you'll you'll describe it. So I'll give you a few. So let me start with the first one. I think most communication advice that's given in our industry is garbage. And I'll tell you why the reason it's garbage is because for me, the definition of communication is how do we convey an idea in a way that achieves a specific outcome for a specific audience? How do we convey an idea in a way that helps somebody get what they want or get what you want? That's basically what communication is. But if all the communication content is theoretical, how is that helping us get what we want and help and, and, uh, and share better messages to our audience? That's the big problem. Hence why I was able to beat a lot of the space really fast because all of them are pure academics. They're getting paid money by their universities to have a faculty job. Whereas me, if I don't get results for clients, I'm broke. Like If I go to an executive and they pay me thousands of dollars to work with me and I don't get them a result, I'm screwed like they'll tell all of their executives, "Hey, Brendan sucks at what he does. Don't give him money." That's not true if you're like a Stanford professor because that's not what your outcome is measured against. If I'm a Stanford PhD in communication, which I am not, obviously, but let's say I am, and I get a nice faculty job, I'm I'm netting a quarter of a million dollars a year, and it doesn't matter if I get if you're in my class and I get you results because that's not my job, which is fine. Right? My job is just to do research on communication, to teach you a class like any other college. And whether you get better at communication doesn't change my faculty job. So that's number one, the incentives aren't aligned. Number two is the whole idea that the fear of communication is the number one thing that everyone should be scared of, I think is stupid and probably not true. And the reason I'm so confident in that is because there's so there's a clear reason in my mind why we're scared of communication, and I and I feel that it's nothing to do with our DNA and who we are as human beings. I think it has everything to do with the education system, right? So the education system is designed for us to hate communication. I'll tell you why: high school, middle school, elementary school. Let's say, mean you're in high school again, and we have to give presentations. All of those presentations, Brody, have three fundamental problems. The first one is all of them are mandatory. You don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, Brody, you want to get breakfast and present all day? Nobody says that. So that's one. Number two, all of those presentations are never tied to a a passion. So it's never, hey, Brody, what do you love to do? What are you passionate about? What do you care about? It's never that. It's always, hey, Uh, You got to talk about Shakespearean poetry and you don't have a choice in the matter. That's number two. And number three, every presentation is tied to a punishment. So if you don't do a great job, Brody, you don't get a pat on the back, you get a slap in the face. And you lose 20% of your grade. So if we if we keep doing this, every presentation is mandatory. 100% of presentations are tied to something we don't care about. Every presentation is tied to a punishment. Of course we grew up believing communication is a chore. Because we get taught our whole life that it's a chore. But the opposite case to that, and I'll throw it back to you, is theater. Why do kids in theater love speaking? Because that shouldn't make sense. If, num- if communication is the number one fear on earth, every kid in theater should be an extrovert. But that's not true. Statistically, there has to be introverts in theater. So why don't they have that same fear? Because their frame of reference is different, Brody. When they go on stage, they don't think oh my god I have to talk about uh, okay maybe they have to do a Shakespearean play but they're not thinking uh, oh I have to do a math exam they're thinking oh my god my friends are here my family is here I really want to make sure that people leave with a great experience and that's their why so they come in and they win so those are just a couple of controversial opinions I hear
1: if you were made the president of uh, you're good at the this United man. States. thank you <laughs> <laughs> if you were made the president of a very large educational institution say it was a i think it'd be tough to affect change in in public schools because there's not necessarily one person in charge of all of that but you're made the president of a very large chain of private schools and your number one initiative is to improve the way that people learn communication let's kind of take all of the wrong ways to do it that you talked about what would be the things that you would institute as the right ways
0: to do man that is the most that is the best question i ever got asked (laughs) i love that question and i doubt you have i doubt you have any problems in relation i bet your girlfriend or boyfriend i want to assume adores you (laughs) so so Uh,
1: sometimes i talk too much for <laughs> I doubt that, That's man. The, the downfall of dating a podcast host.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if anyone's talking to us on this podcast, it's probably me. But uh, but yeah, it's a fantastic question. So so I've been thinking about this a lot, Brody. The solution actually isn't that hard. Here's here's the basic idea, and I'll tell you the curriculum. It's pretty simple. I've coached kids in the past. People could just copy what I share. The simple idea is just fixing these core three things. We mentioned that they're mandatory. We mentioned that you're presenting something that you don't care about. And we mentioned that it's tied to a punishment. Just remove those three blocks. How do we make communication not feel like a punishment? How do we get you to pick something you really like? which So it's basically the opposite. And how do we not make it feel like you have to do it? So here's a couple of easy things to get us started. The easy thing is do the random word exercise with their family. So a lot of my clients are in their 40s and 50s. So what I ask them to do is I, I say, do the random word exercise with your seven-year-old daughter. But don't give them a score. Don't give them feedback on how they're doing. Just clap for, for them doing it. Think of it like a game. So when they feel like it's a game, they start to have fun. That's why a lot of them come back to me and they say, you really helped improve my relationship with my family. That always confuses me. I like, go, what are you talking about? I don't have kids. Like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And the executive goes, you know, when I come home after long days of work, Brendan, my daughter, my son, they're always watching TV all day. So when I come up to them and they don't talk to me, but when I come up to them and I say, hey, I got this game that my coach taught me and he's a kid too. Let's do the random word exercise. It's not just about communication. It's about something infinitely more valuable than communication, which is spending quality time with your family right? Creating those bonds. So that's the key. How do we make communication fun? Now let's dive deeper. So that's what anyone could do with their households and their family. Just do the random word exercise, the video message, have your kids, and you set the example, by the way, I'm not saying you have kids, but people who do, you probably will maybe in like 10, 15 years, but like send video messages to have your kids send video messages to their uncles, their aunties, their grandmothers, their grandparents, and then and then the the relatives will go, "Wow, he's so, she such and such is such a great speaker," and that boosts their confidence. And then the question drill as well, which is ask them an open-ended question. Don't ask them d- dumb questions like, "How was your day?" Say if you had to rate your day on a scale of one to 10, what number would you give yourself? And then if they go eight, go why, ask them why. Ask your five-year-old, what's the biggest lesson they learned about themselves this year? Don't assume that they're kids, treat them like adults with the questions you're asking them. Have that childlike curiosity. And those are a couple of surface level things. In the actual education system, I would apply the same tips and retrain the teachers to change their their mindset around speaking, because they taught it, they got taught it the wrong way too, so that's what they bring back to the new generation of students. So I would teach the teachers first how to make communication fun for them, and then that energy will get projected back in the students, and that's problem solved.
1: I love it. What are uh, you? Don't have to answer this if you don't want to. You can but ask what me. Are, One or two things that you've been able to identify already that I could be doing to be a better communicator. It could be more general or more specific, whatever comes to mind.
0: For sure, Brody. I mean, for you, I have to start with the positives. You're a really good listener. Like you let me ramble for five to seven minutes on end and you're taking notes. You're doing that really, really well your questions are really thoughtful, which is advice for your audience. The best questions you can ask, whether you have a podcast or not, is not really the point. It's whenever you're in conversation with somebody, the best questions you can ask are often follow-up questions on what the person has already said. So instead of going to another question, what you do really well, which most people don't, by the way, is you'll listen to what I say, you'll take notes, and you'll go, I just want to dive in two miles deeper into that specific point and that's why the conversation becomes a lot more nuanced and interesting not just for ourselves but for the audience because people who have listened to me on other shows go oh well the the host doesn't really ask this that's why i listen to brody and not everyone else so that's the the second piece i think for you what to work on uh if i had to pick one it wouldn't be about like basic communication. It wouldn't be, hey, you're not doing this right or you're not smiling right. I would have you go five levels deeper and ask yourself more thoughtfully, what do you want the vision of your show to be? Because all of the best interviewers on the planet, Larry King, Lewis Howes, Oprah Winfrey – whenever they interview a guest, they have a very specific intention for how they want the conversation to go. Whereas in your case, what you do is you like co-creating that intention. So before we started, you said, hey, what's your intention for the show? And you kind of told me, but would have been a little bit better is you would have let me talk, and then after you would have said your intention. Hey, the reason I want to have you on the show is because you mentioned these three things, and I want to bring that more. I feel that's what's missing from the other interviews you've done. So mm. if you had, which is next level, I don't think I'm deserving of that type of intention but when you're interviewing like Oprah, do it that way. And <laughs> what this does intellectually so this really has nothing this is really advanced by the for those who are listening so so good on you Brody is when you do it this way you achieve an unintended consequence from the guest I'll give you an example the unintended consequences is you're rewiring their brain let me tell you what I mean I'm probably doing 10 interviews a week on average so whenever I get on a show right people people who guessed a lot right people who guessed on a lot of shows so when they guest on a show, their assumption is that the host isn't that great. That's the, always their assumption. because, And they're, they're happy. They're smiling. They're always going to show up. But they know the questions are going to be basic. So if you start the beginning of the interview and you just go hey, I've done my homework. These are the three intentions that I have for this show that I feel are different from everything else. What you're doing is you're signaling in my mind, oh, Brody's taking this seriously. I only got there 15 minutes into the interview when I realized like how much of an OG you were. I was like, oh, okay, I need to really focus. But if it's from the beginning, I was like, oh, okay, this guy's different. I need to really focus. Let me start canceling the calls after that, that I have to make sure that I'm really delivering because this guy's putting in a lot of time. So that's what I would work on. Very nuanced, though, if that makes sense. I love
1: sense. it. Yeah. Well, hey, a little bit of a selfish question there, but I really appreciate it. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, something I've been thinking. I, I've gotten similar feedback to uh, less of a depth from just some of my friends is saying, hey, what do you, like, that that point of what do you want the vision of the show to be? And I, I think, for me, I, it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I, I think that's very important. And I, I like the idea. I mean, I did... I mentioned I did my homework a little bit, and I've been able to identify a lot of the areas you talk about a lot. And, and of course, I did feel like there was some gaps, so I'm glad we got to cover some. Um, For sure. If you had a Forbes article written about you <laughs> tomorrow based on the work that you've done so far, how would you want yourself represented? What would you want the headline to be? <laughs>
0: This is lie. So two parts. One thing I want to touch on from before and then let's get to the Forbes question is because I think it's important to 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 balance the feedback. Don't see not having a vision as a bad thing, though, because like the first 100 episodes, 200 episodes, 300 episodes if anything, it's OK not to know the vision because you'll figure it out over time. Like when I started Master Shock, if you had sat me down and said, what's the vision? I'd have been like, dude, I don't know, man. Like, when are we going to the party on Thursday? Like, that's literally been yeah. my answer. <laughs> They'll be like, what's your vision? I was like, dude, I don't know, man. I'm just making videos in my basement. I'm going to work at IBM. They gave me a job. I'm going to make a lot of yeah. money. Like, i am not thinking. <laughs> obviously, now I have a very sophisticated vision. It feels really thought. I've worked with so many coaches, invested a ton of money. And now I'm like really specific and focused on where I want to be. But it'll come with time. So I, I think that's important to, to mention as well. As long as you're having fun, just keep doing it. That's, that's more than enough to put you ahead, honestly. In terms of the Forbes article, there's a couple of different directions I could take. But I feel the most important one, sure, I could say mention my three tips. But I think the, what the Forbes article would be about is really on the mission of MasterTalk. Why I started it, why it's important. So the, the article would probably be entitled why communication is important to master for every genius that's ever going to live on earth that's really the the title and the content is really about hey you got all of these geniuses all these people have the best ideas on the planet but they're so but they forget the most important part which is distribution and marketing is half the battle if you just have a great product and you're the best in the world at what you do and nobody knows nobody cares So you need to spend enough time as you do creating the videos, as you do showing up on the podcasts. You need to spend just as much time thinking about how do I make this product better as you do making social media content to distribute that information to as many people as possible. And a lot of the smartest people I've met in my life are really bad at distribution because they spend so much of their time on which they have to. Right to create these incredible products, these services, or just ideas, but they're horrible at bringing them to the world. Including Elon Musk. I mean, if I had forty-five minutes to coach him today, I would, I would definitely work on a few things for sure. But he doesn't care at this point. So there you go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you happen to be listening to this, Elon Musk, Brendan would love to coach you, and I think he would do a great job. <laughs> for <all that's> <laughs> Thanks. <man>. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, I had a question in mind just a second ago. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, it might take a second for it to come to me. If not, I'll circle back. Um, I'll go into kind of the closing questions I have for the podcast. So, first one I have for you. I always like to ask, and I would use your entry into Master Talk. When when was it exactly again that you started Master Talk?
0: So I'll give you a few dates. So I started. I started case competition in September twenty fifteen. I started coaching in Jan twenty sixteen, and I started Master Talk in twenty nineteen.
1: Okay, so if you could go to just the beginning of the the first time that you realized that that you were improving. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go back to my other question because I remembered it. <laughs> it. Um, when I ask? Who do you feel like your personal biggest success story is in the coaching that you've done? You can use specific names and examples or not, if depending on who it is. But when I ask who your biggest success story is, who comes to mind?
0: For sure, Brody. Of of course, you know, I'm super grateful for everyone I've worked with. If I had to pick one, I would go with the CEO of AIM Colors. So so when I met her, she was my first CEO client. She was kind of the person who first paid me money for coaching. One of the first at that level. And for her, the challenge was using communication as a vehicle to share her ideas with the world. She's a PhD in organic chemistry. She's absolutely brilliant. And she developed a technology called Aim Colors where you put these nails on your fingers and it allows you to change the colors of your nails with the click of a button on your phone. So it's a product like women would adore because they don't have to change their nail polish anymore. So it's pretty <laughs> wild. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's a wild technology. And it works too. They're like really close to, to, to commercializing it. But there's one problem, Brody. Having the product isn't enough. You got to go on the stages. You got to raise money. You got to convince investors. You can't do this. Like coaching is really easy. I don't need any startup capital. If I can convince you to give me a thousand bucks or two thousand, my business started, it costs me nothing. Like coaching on a Zoom call, it's nothing. There's zero startup costs. I'm just trading my time. But when you're building a hardware startup like that, you need money. You need people to give you money or else you can't, you can't sell. You can't produce the nails. You can't sell the nails. You can't distribute it. You can't market it. You're dead. You're dead in the water. So I had to change her identity. I said, look, you got an incredible product. But if you're, if you're going to be a wuss and you're not going to share those ideas to the world, you're not going to win. You're not going to be successful. So I reminded her of how powerful she was. I trained her on the random word exercise. She did the question drills, but for her, the context is more when investors who are really rude to you are throwing questions your way, how do you stay calm? So it's not a podcast situation anymore. It's like, okay, what's your capex? Okay. What's this? What's this? What's it? They start drilling you with numbers. And after all of that, three months. She raised a lot of money for a business in the hundreds of thousands. She actually just got into an accelerator. They just paid her like a $130,000 check. But I think more importantly than that, more than the money, more than the success that she's had working with me, for me, the delight was she is that seven year old girl, right? You know, remember I told you the next Elon Musk is a seven year old girl who can't afford a communication coach? You know, she's that person. Because when she was seven years old, she couldn't afford a communication coach. So the next version of her, doesn't know who I am, might be in Cambodia, and what is she going to do? And I need to be there for those people. So, yeah, that lights me up a ton.
1: I love that. That's an inspiring story. I'm excited to see that that product hopefully go commercial. I think my girlfriend would love that.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. She's on fire. She's going to crush. You'll hear from her soon.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) M colors. I wrote it down to look out for it.
0: For sure so uh i have a couple
1: closing questions to the podcast and the first one that i have for you is if you could go back to the beginning of when you first started coaching on communication and you could just go back in time taking the wisdom and knowledge that you've gained over the course of doing it for those eight years now What are a couple things that you would tell a younger Brendan to do differently as he got into that?
0: I'm not sure how applicable this is to other people, but I'll give you a few things. The first one is have a bias for action. You know, for me, the mistakes that I made, Brody, and every successful person is going to say, I'm not even that successful, but people who have had some success, is I should have started sooner. And I know it's it's a little cocky to say that, but man, if I had started my YouTube channel in 2016 instead of 2019... Who I'd be easily in the hundreds of thousands of subscribers, easily, easily, because I just would have had a three-year head start on top of that, and it never came to mind. Same even even today, like uh, with short-form content, I'm I'm really active now on Instagram and TikTok. But the mistake I made, dude, is I only started posting on Instagram Reels and stuff in October. If I had done that two years ago. Pfft. Yeah, I would have exploded like a lot of my other colleagues in communication. And the only difference was not talent. I'm just as good as those guys. The only difference was I was a wuss. I didn't take action. I was overthinking it. Ah, oh, like, do I really need to post Instagram? I should focus on YouTube. Blah, blah, blah. Instead of just testing with a hundred pieces of content. So yeah, i fixed that mistake since then. But yeah, I would have taken action faster. That's one mistake. The second one <laughs> I mean, would I have done this? I guess so. I probably would have quit my job earlier. So I stayed in my corporate job for two and a half years, which isn't that long. But I, I would say if I had quit maybe six or nine months earlier, I would have a lot more traction. I was just super worried because I was the only breadwinner in my family. But I was overplaying that risk. It's not like I live in a mansion. The mortgage is at $4,000 a month, you know? Right? So, it's, so I, sh- I should have probably played it a little bit. I should have taken more risk. Because I'm, I'm very risk-averse. Once again, I don't regret it. I'm still, I'm still really young. I would say the last thing, <laughs> one more thing. Real quick, I, I want to give a
1: quick note that Please. I've come to really believe in. I would consider yourself very much an entrepreneur. I've noticed very recently that a lot of entrepreneurs are counterintuitively very risk-averse people. I would consider myself risk-averse as well but I also consider myself kind of an entrepreneur. I've come to believe recently that pursuing your own path in that way is actually one of the, the most risk hedging things that you can do because building a personal brand around a skill like yours, that's not going away is going to have value indefinitely no matter what the market circumstances are.
0: Oh, I mean, you articulated that so well and And I wish that younger Brendan would have heard that, but that's easier said than done, so that's so i we know that now now it's like okay, the, obviously I obviously I make I do better now than I did in corporate, and life is better for me. but in the moment, it's very difficult, right because the recession hadn't hit yet, all my buddies didn't lose their jobs yet so so that job at IBM felt really safe. so for you, it's just like why would I? Quit this job to then cut my salary by seventy percent when I'm providing for my mom and my sister, and that's really the challenge. So for me, it's bridging both of those ideas. Because if you're too risk averse, you'll grow too slowly, and if you're too risk loving, you'll run towards bankruptcy. So you have to always measure both of these things. And I think for me, I'm definitely too much on the risk averse side. Though I don't think that's a bad thing. But like I'll give you, like I'll give an extreme example, like I, I gave before. Why did I wait 20 years to buy a $300 chair? That's ridiculous. Like I should have just bought a chair. Like I have the money. Like it doesn't matter. But I'm just thinking, oh, like I could use that $300 for something else. Like really kid? Like just buy a chair.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you got the chair, <laughs> Brandon. It looks great. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be seen on many more podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And um, thank you for that insightful answer. I think I think there's a lot to dig into there for anyone who's listening that maybe hasn't taken that step yet is if you consider yourself a very risk averse person here's someone who considers himself the same but took that action and has realized that taking the action was the thing he needed to do all along and has brought him the most success so a lot of inspiration in there to do that and uh brendan the other question that i have for you in closing is the show is called Profession Session, and I very much enjoy breaking down the qualities that lead to exceptional professionalism on this show. So my question is, what does it mean to you personally to be a professional in your career and in your professional life?
0: Yeah, for me and Brody, the definition of being a professional is far exceeding the requirements that someone wants you to deliver for a project or for just their expectations of having you around as a human being. It doesn't even need to be about business. And that's, I think, what I've really prided myself. I'm not the most formal guy in the world. I'm super informal with clients, casual. I call my guy clients brothers. Like I'm just weird like that. But when it comes to the delivery of the service, I'm so obsessive. I want to make sure people leave, not like... Uh, like that they got better that's like a weak expectation for me i want them to leave awestruck like they go whoa like brendan is that crazy to deliver results for people this is insane like my friend told me he was crazy but they didn't tell me this nuts and that to me is what being a professional is it's walking the talk and delivering exponentially more than what that person expects out of you as a human being
1: i think that's awesome a lot of great notes in there too Brendan, how can people find you, get in touch with you, find your content?
0: This is definitely one of the top interviews, Brody. I've had so so thanks Thank for that. You, it was man. Super fun. Yeah, <laughs> really appreciate it. So so I two appreciate ways you coming on for sure. It's my pleasure. This is super cool. So two ways to keep in touch. The first one is go ahead to YouTube and type Master Talk in one word, and you'll have access to hundreds of free videos on how to communicate ideas effectively. And the second way to keep in touch is to attend one of my free communication workshops. So I do a free one like every two weeks over Zoom. It's a 90-minute call. I facilitate it. It's fun. So if you want to jump on that, go to rockstarcommunicator.com
1: awesome thank you again for being on and i will make sure that anyone listening or watching can find all of brendan's information and master talk information in the show notes or the description depending on whether you're on audio or video thank you for listening to profession session that's a podcast